Welcome to another edition of the Bataan Salon podcast. Recent headwinds have accelerated the need for manufacturers to utilize emerging technologies to leverage automation, increase their digital capabilities, and retain top talent in new working conditions. Today, we have the privilege of speaking to Charles Sukup, chairman of Sukup Manufacturing, who has successfully tapped into culture to create a high-performing and innovative organization. Charles shares with us key takeaways in how manufacturers can build and maintain cultures of innovation within their organizations. Charles, thank you very much for joining us today on Bataan Salon. Uh, our invitation was motivated by uh, your company's reputation for innovation over decades of history working in agriculture in the Midwest and beyond. Um, I was wondering for the listeners who may not be as familiar, if you could give us a bit of an introduction to yourself and Sukup Manufacturing. Sukup Manufacturing was started back in about 1962. My dad was farming. He never went to college, got married uh, and bought his first farm right after high school there, fairly soon thereafter, and then bought his first grain bin. It was the time when people were uh, changing from harvesting ear corn and putting in cribs to shelled corn. And he had problems with drying the grain. And like they say, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. He uh, got an auger, put it on a drill, and thought it was such a good idea for breaking up the crust in the grain bin that he got a patent on it and then started to make a few of them. But the interesting thing, the, f the first ones that he sold were sold for $29.95 each. He sold five of them to the dealer that had sold him the grain bin to begin with. And he went back a few months after he had sold uh, the dealer. And the dealer said, Gene, I could only sell uh, three of them. And the one guy wants his money back. You've got to make it more automatic. And so uh, you could have said, oh, it's a failure and stop there. But if you look at any uh, successes over the years, it's perseverance and overcoming the obstacles that get thrown into in front of any business. So that was in the 1960s. Could you give us a sense of the scope of your business today? Well, we uh, have over 700 employees now. We sell worldwide. Uh, I ended up being the first degreed engineer at the company. Dad thought it uh, would be cheaper to raise an engineer than to hire one. So I went to Iowa State and took ag engineering. I was the first one in my family to go to a a four-year college and graduate from one. And it was just a very exciting experience to know what uh, I was going to be doing and learning all these things that I could see immediate applications to. So the, the Sukup grain bin is ubiquitous, I think, in the Midwest. People know of it uh, here and across the world. Um, you, you gave a bit of a sense of how the company started. Its roots are in innovation. And we know that uh, over its history, you've held over 100 patents. Um, could you describe a little bit more current efforts in innovation and meeting market needs as they evolve? Well, you chase the rabbit where it runs. And uh, with the innovation, I guess, going back to where we uh, first began with, we were just making accessories for green bins, the stirring machines and then fans and heaters and uh, accessory products and then we could see that we were getting squeezed out in the 1990s uh, by other companies 
and there was consolidation going on and we first started making standalone grain dryers and our people came up with unique things. Um, we've had some competitors. Uh, in fact, one famously said they didn't need an engineering department, they just needed a copy machine. And their philosophy was to go out and copy what was uh, selling. Now, we always looked, you have to benchmark and look to what uh, your competitors and others in the market are doing but we always have our team of people looking at how we can do things better. And the amazing thing, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier, I was the first degreed engineer, but dad had hired people that, from the farm uh, that didn't have college degrees and they were doing engineering work and they were having new ideas and getting patents. And of course, dad had more patents than anybody else in our company here. What struck me was when I went to Iowa State, I had one ag engineering professor uh, that he loved to make uh, outrageous statements. And uh, one of them was the more education that you get, the less creative you become. And uh, he would argue that education or colleges teach you what you can't do rather than what you can do. And then a lot of people try things and go after them that uh, if uh, they listened to everybody around them, they would, uh, would not do it. And I think that's the case from what I've heard of the story on fracking uh, came up from uh, a person in the industry out there rather than from research institutions or the conventional wisdom that that wasn't a practical, realistic way uh, to, to get oil or that. So uh, a lot of it is to uh, see things, and my dad had a great uh, capability of that, seeing things in people that they didn't see themselves and throwing them in the deep end of the pool and uh, let them uh, sink or swim and challenge. And it's amazing how they uh, would often thrive. We always, uh, our company has been, I guess you would say, value uh, type, uh, trying to find the diamond in the rough or, mm -hmm. you know, just hard workers and you know, let them work and create an environment where they can sprout and bloom. Absolutely. I think the closer you are to the problems, the more apparent they are. And I think sometimes the disconnect between academia and industry is that the the academician is one step removed from the daily problem. And so having those put together, I think is a very powerful combination. Um, you know, obviously over here in 2020, there's been serious disruptions to the markets in most industries. Do you find that the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed innovation in any way, or had your workers thinking about different ways of doing things for your customers? Well, we've been having to utilize virtual meetings and things of that nature. I think the thing that really stands out that when you talk about essential industries and essential employees, that really the essential employees are the plant workers that are on the shop floor. That that to us, that's the biggest challenge is having a large workforce. And we are, you know, challenged on getting a number of employees and we're trying to hire more and more and we're working overtime here with it. But uh, uh, when it comes to our type of business, uh, the grain bins and uh, steel manufacturing, 
a hundred ton press you can't move home and work from home on. You've got to bring the people here and it is still all linked uh, together with it. So it's reinforced some of the, uh, what really is important that way. Very good. Uh, when we spoke, we touched a little bit on the safety home that has been deployed uh, in the Caribbean and Haiti specifically and other places uh, as a coping mechanism for emergency situations. And I, I think that captured our imagination of ways that know-how and talent can be, you know, from one industry can be applied to another. Could you tell us a little bit the story of the safety home? Well, it's a modified grain bin, an 18-foot diameter grain bin. And our family was over in Africa. Our daughter was in Uganda at the time. And we saw, you know, a person living in an old modified grain bin over at that time. Uh, the safety home comes from one of our employees here uh, that had uh, was particularly involved and concerned about the earthquake after uh, that happened in Haiti and then how to provide housing when a year later people were still living in tents and shelters that were just a minimal um, shelter and uh, uh, did some distinctions with it of uh, getting air vents, doors, lockable uh, windows, doors on it, which uh, is something we don't think about, but uh, in the less developed countries, personal security is as important as it is to us in our so-called developed uh, uh, countries and uh, environments here. And so it was a team effort of our uh, people here to put together a design that had unique uh, events and catching water and, uh, um, and different types of things that have really captured the attention of people. And it's, uh, several mission agencies have really run with it. And uh, it's really uh, heartwarming to see how people have uh, benefited from it. One, uh, it was started because of the earthquake there to just have a secure housing. But one of the big pluses has been in resisting uh, hurricanes. It's a, uh, well, a round bin is really kind of similar to the uh, huts that you will see in Africa. Uh, uh, that and uh, with the conical top and the a round bin, it's uh, fairly resistant to high winds and uh, we anchor it down and uh, so it's resisted, it resisted better than 80% of the buildings in the areas where they were at and had people, uh, 60, 70 people all grouped in a 18 foot diameter for several hours as the hurricane uh, came through. Well, that's, it's amazing. And I saw pictures of them still standing, minimal damage, but everyone's safe inside. Uh, I think it's an amazing example of taking innovation from one industry and putting it to a social use that's benefiting many communities around the world. Uh, one of the, the focus areas for this podcast series, as we think about the future of manufacturing, is about the culture that leaders are trying to create within their organizations. And as I think about your comments earlier about the way that your father managed talent, putting people in the deep end, spotting talent, and then nurturing it over time, uh, and really driving innovation from the bottom up, people who see the problems, 
uh, and say that we've got to solve this issue and how are we going to do it. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you try to keep that as an ongoing cultural element in the organization to ensure that innovation is always on people's minds as they are going about their daily tasks. Well, you mentioned culture and that, that is really crucial. I was uh, president and CEO for 25 years here. And I, you know, number one is we always try to create that it's a we environment, not an I environment. Uh, my dad always used to say you can get a lot done if you don't worry about who takes the credit for it. And, uh, and when you look back at the significant achievements uh, in our society, we always like to think it's one eureka moment that creates this. But it's a multitude of things and factors coming together uh, that lead to successful innovation. Uh, the other thing on, uh, you know, entrepreneurs that comes to mind is uh, oftentimes uh, you hear people talk about being risk takers. And to me, that's one of the big fallacies that uh, if you ask an entrepreneur, are they a risk taker? Generally, they don't consider themselves risk takers. I always get nervous around people that brag that they're risk takers. Now, I tend to be a more conservative person anyway, but uh, entrepreneurs are so convinced that their idea is great. It's not, they don't think they're taking a risk. And I think if you say you're doing something because uh, you, you, you're a big risk taker, uh, that's a dangerous, slippery slope. Uh, uh, you, you've got to be, and all the entrepreneurs I know, they had no doubt in their mind that this was the greatest thing uh, there was and it was going to happen and sell. Now, the us outsiders, we look at as risk taking, but uh, really, to me, anytime a person comes in and brags they're a big risk taker, that makes me kind of push away and kind of oh, be want to be careful around. <laughs> so uh, number one, we feel that strong relationships with our customers and our employees that, uh, you know, we know them by name, we work with them, we get input. Um, unlike uh, some of our competitors, we don't have a specific advisory committee of a selected few dealers. We have our dealer meetings and then we, uh, you know, have questionnaires, uh, family members, the company uh, members, people all interact and visit with the dealers and we hear ideas from them. We come up with uh, ideas on things as well and it's this uh, kind of brainstorming, mixing of different ideas. Um, the other key thing I think is uh, a robust dialogue, that you argue it out, that you don't have you know, forbidden things that you can't talk about or that you can't uh, uh, push on, that we find we come up with much better, more robust products by having this vigorous debate and argument and uh, uh, let the best ideas uh, win on it. And then stand behind your product. Do what you say you're going to do. 
When people join the organization, so when you bring new workers to the floor, is it part of the onboarding process that they are taught that this is like a very, you know, when we think about Japanese manufacturers and they put in very strict systems to reinforce these cultural elements. So the most junior person can, you know, fill out a form, give it to the supervisor. It goes up for this dialogue and debate. Do you run it in a formal way like that? Or is it more of a spontaneous people learn on the job that it's okay to share their opinions? Uh, it's more of a spontaneous thing. We hand out our uh, core principles uh, sheet uh, that highlight the things that uh, I just mentioned there. Mm -hmm. And uh, I feel the most important thing is setting the example and creating the environment there. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, you know, listening to ideas that percolate out and then uh, running with them, so. I'm curious, these, the, the core principles, we, we talk to a lot of organizations at the moment who are trying to figure out how to live out values. And it sounds like you have figured out a way over the, the decades to say, okay, this is what we do, this is what's important. We have the integrity to stand behind our people and our processes and our products. Um, are there formal recognitions and ways that those core principles um, that you make sure that they're in everyone's minds all the time? Well, we try and reinforce them. And I guess that's the particular job of the president and CEO is to uh, remind people. Uh, we do some things, uh, you know, as a family owned and operated uh, company here that uh, uh, we celebrate, well, like, uh, it used to be dad's birthday, but he died a, a couple years ago uh, at uh, 88 years of age. And uh, we'll still have a celebration for mom's birthday here as she hits uh, 88. And we announced profit sharing. We've had profit sharing for decades uh, as a way to kind of uh, get the group effort and that we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether it's uh, back orders to a customer or a product that doesn't work, that uh, affects all of us in the pocketbook uh, that way. And my parents, you know, and, and we try to continue that as well, going to uh, employee weddings, kids' uh, graduations, of having a, a special uh, connection there. But as I've been told, that gets, uh, as I well know too, when you, get, you, when you get up to 600, 700 employees, that uh, uh, gets to be a big change as well and uh, um, how you do it. But it still all comes down to people and uh, yep. that, uh, getting the right people. And uh, Do you find as, as a portfolio of activity, has that been effective for you in, in the so-called war for talent? We know that some manufacturers struggle to attract and retain a sufficient human capital base to, to meet production needs and customer needs. Um, do you find that culture, the sort of we're all in it together, respect, I, I think I read on your website that you've taken people to Hawaii after 10 years of service. Um, has that been a, an ace up your sleeve for, for attracting the people you need? And that was started decades ago as well. Uh, we started out uh, with dad saying, well, there, you know, if we increase sales by 50% this year, uh, we would take the sales reps to Hawaii. And um, 
in our business, ag business, and particularly at that time, you'd have increases of 50%, you'd have decreases of 50%. I mean, in wild uh, swings in ag and weather and corn prices and things of that nature. Well, very soon on, uh, uh, we learned that that wasn't popular with all the rest of the employees, or it, it, isn't, a, it isn't the team effort that I talked about to mm -hmm. begin with. So um, we added that, uh, you know, any employee that once they had uh, come with, uh, been with us 10 years, we'd take them and their spouse to Hawaii on the trip. And then we added on dealers, a dealer incentive trip, that if they bought enough equipment, they could get this trip as well, which really was a wonderful uh, combination of things and a wonderful evolution that we had the sales reps with the dealers that were actually selling our customers that were selling the equipment, and then the people in the plant that were building it. And then uh, we'd have meetings, a uh, few short meetings at the hotel before people ran out to the beach and that sort of thing. And uh, it was wonderful to see the pride in the employees telling how they had, they made the floor supports or they made the fans that these customers and uh, for people interacting that way to get this cohesive uh, group e event that uh, dealers felt tied with our company and our employees as well. Yeah, I think that interpersonal connection as a as a byproduct of the trip, I'm sure that strengthens relationships for years afterwards, both the outcome of the meetings and the informal interactions that happened later on, uh, whether it was on the beach or in the evening celebrations, that matters for solving problems later and making sure innovation can uh, continues. We hear a lot about uh, Industry 4.0 and the role of big data and automation and technology in the future of manufacturing. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about your sort of view of the next five to 10 years uh, in that area of technology and data and how you plan to leverage it uh, in your own business. Well, we're looking at the some of the newer innovations and particularly electronics and uh, the sensing together the internet of things or the industry 4.0 uh, with it and it's trying to get the right balance uh, because you have on the other side uh, from the customers a real desire for simplicity and reliability that you need to be careful on uh, uh, not going a bridge uh, too far or being on the bleeding edge of things. And um, we, we've had a real success with our new mixed flow dryer uh, that uh, combines uh, some new things and vacuum cooling onto a uh, previously uh, type of equipment that was out there and we've gotten a patent on it and we're uh, improving the moisture sensing and control. And uh, we've had uh, uh, apps and mods for our uh, dryer that people can monitor what's going on with their dryer uh, while they're on the tractor or several miles away with their iPhones. Outstanding. The, the automation, I think, that's going on in agriculture is pretty amazing. Um, as you look ahead, in agriculture specifically and the trends that are happening and 
um, the efforts of, of industry and industry partners uh, in Iowa, uh, where do you think the industry is going to see itself in five or 10 years? What is the, the future of agriculture and food production from your perspective? Well, we know that that's uh, going to be a need out there in feeding the world. Um, one of the things uh, with the sustainability and uh, there's a growing push uh, for circular farming that we be uh, more careful on how that uh, we use everything with it, that it's not input in and output, but more of a circular thing. So it's renewable in that. So that uh, will be... Uh, the challenge uh, uh, coming up here and uh, uh, monoculture agriculture uh, as versus uh, more a multitude of different uh, plants and grains that all contribute to the uh, uh, long-term success and viability of uh, feeding the world a world that keeps growing excellent um, if, as you think on, on your career and your family's history of success in manufacturing and, and industry, if we were talking to entrepreneurs and people who maybe are in the, the agricultural accelerator, what are a couple pieces of advice you would give to someone who's looking to build an innovative company today? Well, surround yourself with good people. Keep it a team effort, argue things out. The disagreements uh, are really kind of like the sand within the pearl or create the pearl on things. Uh, it's really the tug back and forth that uh, makes things grow and uh, to achieve your higher possibilities there. You know, and thinking back, I was nine years old when really dad started the company and we were farming and uh, then to grow to here, it, it just kind of seems like a natural evolution. But then when you look back at what a difficult, what a challenging time. I, uh, I re it was the same ag engineering professor, uh, uh, speaking of innovation or creativity, said, when you have a new idea, it's just like this tiny little baby that you've got in your arms and everybody else wants to damage it and kill it and tell you why it's no good. And you've just got to protect it and nurture it uh, where you can because you're not gonna find the nurture from uh, outside of you. You're gonna have to bring it in there and uh, pursue it. And uh, uh, the difficulty and challenges of starting uh, something that's new and being creative and being an entrepreneur I'd like to thank Charles for joining us on the Baton Salon podcast today. Sukup Manufacturing continues to inspire its peers who strive to build innovative and impactful organizations. For our Iowa listeners, please join us at the ABI Advanced Manufacturing Conference on September 30th, where we will unpack how manufacturers can shape their own organizational cultures to drive innovation and embrace Industry 4.0. Subscribe to Baton Salon to hear future podcasts on top of mind topics for manufacturers and the entire business community. Thank you.